make it through to verse 30, these two paragraphs. In a sense, there are two overarching thoughts to these paragraphs, and they stand in contrast to one another. And one is the acceptance of the things of God, and the other represents the rejection of the things of God. And the acceptable year, we're going to break that down a little bit, but what you can expect this morning uh, is how Jesus returned from the wilderness. The temptation, the trial that he faced for 40 days in the wilderness did not destroy him, did not weaken him. Rather, it was the opposite. It empowered him. And we must look at the trials and the tribulations and the things that we suffer in our wilderness experience in this earthly journey as not to destroy us, but to strengthen us, to transform us, and to make us more powerful witnesses for him. And so we're going to, in the first paragraph here, work through what our church needs and what every believer in Christ needs, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit at work within our lives. I want to do my best to explain the work of the Holy Spirit. I know we touched on that a few weeks back, but um, you have and I have remarkable forgetters. And because we forget, we don't always apply. And so we need an opportunity to, not, to remember and also to reapply the truth to us. And then secondly, we're going to look at the mission that he had and still has among us as his people within and to reach the world. And um, so that, and then we have communion here at the end of the service. I'm not sure how this is uh, going to end. I really want to be open to be led by the Holy Spirit because I know and I am sensing there are great needs in every one of our lives. Let's just be honest and real. We desperately need God. And this is the place where you can connect with Him. You are surrounded by brothers and sisters that love you, that have experienced the presence of God, that know the Lord. This is a safe place. And what better place it is to draw close to the Lord and cast all your cares and all your burdens and to just, just let it all out before God. That's how we make progress. So as we begin this here, uh, as I've titled the message this morning, The Acceptable Year. You know, this would, this would have been better, right, on uh, New Year's Eve, right? <laughs> or, or maybe January 1. Uh, but it applies every day, really. Uh, uh, will this coming year be an acceptable year for you? Will you receive the things of God? Will you open your heart to have all that God has for you? Or will you resist? There's that choice. There's the two sides. There's the acceptance. There's the rejection. There's the holding off, the holding back. Are we really ready for a move of God in our midst? Are we preparing our hearts? Remember, John the Baptist was sent ahead as it were, to prepare a people for the Lord. You know, I, I am of the conviction, strong conviction, that there's going to be an outpouring of God's Spirit in the next few years, not just here, but around the world. We haven't had a revival for over 50 years in our country. The last move of God of any significant was back in the late 60s and early 70s with the hippies. We haven't had a move of God in our country since then. This generation desperately needs a move of God. And we can moan and groan by what we see and hear because it's discouraging 
to see how low, how ignorant, how foolish we have dropped. God has given our nation over to these sins. And our foolish hearts have been darkened, as the scripture tells us. And so we need a visitation. We need a revival. And we need to seek the Lord for this and open our hearts to receive what he has for us. I think we still have time to ready ourselves. I think the Lord has given us a space and a time to, to open our hearts and to prepare ourselves for what he wants to do. How many of you want to be a part of that? How many of you want to be a part of that? I, just, I want to be where God is. I want to be doing what God wants me to do. And so I think of the scripture in Exodus 19 where Israel has just come out of the world and, and he is showing them, he's going to reveal to them what he means to be his child. You're my special treasure. You're my people. If you will obey my voice, you will be my kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. My special, peculiar treasure to myself. And then he tells Moses there in the first part of that chapter, hey, tell the people to get ready. I'm coming to meet with them. Sanctify themselves. Wash their clothes. And I think this is the idea that I'm trying to communicate here. Let's get ourselves ready. Let's get our hearts prepared and open to receive what God's going to be doing in our midst. I mean, do I really want to be part of that, you know? I mean, it takes us preparing ourselves for us. And so he tells them, you know, in that particular context, that's 19, uh, 3 through 13, wash your clothes. And that's really what we're told in the New Testament by Peter. Sanctify the Lord your God in your heart. That's what we're talking about. Let our hearts be washed and let ourselves be cleansed. Stop making excuses for our our sins and let's, let's bring them to the cross and walk in the victory that's been provided for us in the person of Christ. It's there for it's ours for the having if we'll just reach out and take it. If we seek him, we'll find him. He will reveal himself to us. He'll manifest himself to us. He's promised to do that. You know, when you think about it, and those of us who love the Lord and are walking with every time you ask the Lord for something and he gives it to you, doesn't he always give you more than you ask for? He just doesn't, oh, well, that'll do. No, it's usually overflowing. It's always much more. And so I'm pretty excited about what God's going to do in, in through this church and in your lives as well. And so let's pick it up in verse 14. And I'm just going to read through the 30 verses and we'll see this first uh, two verses are one side, the acceptance, and then the remaining verses are the, the rejection, as it were. But in the midst of the rejection, it doesn't change the plan of God. In verse 14, we, recede, we read, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And the news of him went throughout, out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You'll surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you that no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly that many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the, all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those who were in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill, which is their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So as we look at verses 14 and 15, we see that, this, as I mentioned earlier, this wilderness experience of 40 days with uh, eating and fasting and being tempted by the devil uh, did not weaken Jesus in any respect. We see he had been filled there at the time of the baptism. We see that he was led, actually led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this is in, important to, to understand a little bit of the language here, and the tense is imperfect here, where it says that he was led. The idea is that, that it, the Spirit that came upon Jesus wasn't just for the moment there at the baptism, but it was there to stay. It wasn't just for a moment. The Spirit of God was there to help Jesus, to guide Jesus, to uh, aid him in overcoming the temptations. See, he faced these temptations as a man. It wasn't through his deity that he was able to shield himself. See, he suffered as a man. He did the things that he did in his earthly ministry as a man under the filling and anointing of the Spirit. Because he was without sin, he had the spirit without measure. Now, for you and I, uh, that's the problem. We have sin to deal with in our life, and so therefore there's a sort of, we sort of restrict, as it were, the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit in operation through our lives because of that, but not so with Jesus. He re relied completely upon the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We must recognize that. He is our template. He is our example of how you and I are to be empowered by the Spirit. I think our basic conviction and the foundation belief for us that we should trust that everything in our life will change as we deepen our relationship with God. There are many of us that are intimidated by this. We're intimidated by the work of the Holy Spirit. That somehow we might think or feel that we're not worthy to, for God to use us or to, for God to take us to that deeper level, as it were, uh, but nothing could be further from the truth. 
God wants to reveal himself to us. He wants to show himself. He wants to work through us that we might image him better, that we might be more effective, as it were, in our witness and bringing the gospel to the world. You know, the Lord is all about revealing himself to us. He, he wants us to know him. It's not like he's trying to hide from us, especially as his children. He wants to reveal himself. And, and that's really what this life experience is about. It's just coming to know the Lord in a better way, in a, in a deeper way. We think about uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ. You know, the Father uh, revealed the Son to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the incarnation of the Messiah that caused you and I to understand what the Father was really like. We now understand the nature and character of God so much better in the New Testament because of the ministry of Christ than we did in the Old Testament. It's there in the Old Testament, but it's, it's not as overt. But when we get to the life and ministry of Christ, we see the heart of God. And this is what he said to Philip. You know, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We can know the nature and character of God because of Jesus. But that was all done by the anointing and filling of the Holy Spirit, just like it is in our lives. And so I, I find uh, this, if you're paying attention, this is just sort of a little side note. We see the Trinity here. We see the Trinity, you know, the, this, you know, the Messiah, the, the, the Son of God standing on the earth. We see the, the dove coming down, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, you know, lighting upon him. And then we have the voice from heaven. So we have the Father's voice. We have the Holy Spirit taking the form of a dove. And then we have the Messiah. We see the Trinity there. The word Trinity is not in your Bible, but the triune God is all over the place, right? But we also see it here um, in verse 18. Just this, again, this is a little side note. I, I, I think it's important to point these things out when you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in the Trinity. Notice it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. There's the Trinity. The Spirit. Yahweh. Notice the letters are all capitalized in Lord. That's Yahweh. That's the voice. And then me. That's, that's Christ. So, so, so there we have the Trinity for you. So the Lord Jesus is the one who reveals the, nature's, the Father's nature to us and his character. It's the Holy Spirit that transforms your life and my life as well. You know, one of the things we learn right out of the gate as children of God is that as we pray, we learn to pray like Jesus prayed. How did he pray? Father, if it is your will. There are those who think, well, you should never, you should never have to know whether or not something is God's will. You should know that whether or not this is the will of God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's the Lord's will because we have the Spirit. We have God's Word. Really? There's a lot of things I don't know for sure. And I'm not going to assume them either. And here we have the Messiah in the garden. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the prayer of a child of God. Follow that model. You'll do well. The important part is to pray, right? We want our lives to be pleasing to God. And we are called to others-centeredness. This is one of the main activities of the Holy Spirit within us, is to make us not so self-centered, but others-centered. Christ, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who thought of himself, not robbery, 
nothing to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, but took on the form of his servant. And this is the idea, this is the formation of the mind of Christ within the heart of the believer. This is done by the Holy Spirit. He takes up residence within us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. I will never leave you. I will not leave you here as orphans. The Lord is always with us. You never have to doubt that. Those are foundational things. I'm going to give these references to you. For the sake of time, I'm a little concerned about how deep we would go into them. But again, write them down. John 14, 15 through 18. John 14, 25 through 31. John 16, 5 through 15. This is Jesus explaining the work of the Holy Spirit to the apostles. These, I believe, are some of the most important scriptures for you and I to have a good knowledge of and a good understanding of. I'll do 15 through 18. John 14, 15 through 18. You can pull that up back there if you will. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, the helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So this, again, is the work of the Holy Spirit to... Be with us and in us. Now, sometimes those are uh, important things to, to grasp. There are at least four things when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of a summation of these scripture references that I've given to you, when it comes to the Holy Spirit working in us and working through us and coming upon us. Number one, all things in the life of the believer done by God is based in his love. Never doubt what you're going through is the, is the absence of God's love. Oh, if God really loved me, then this wouldn't be happened to me. See, you know where that originates? It originates from the devil. Or it originates from our fallenness. It does not come from the heart of God. So no matter where we're at, good, bad, or ugly, or all of the above, it's everything that comes into our life, comes through the filter of God's love. And never doubt that. It's foundational. Number two, think as the Holy Spirit is your personal assistant. You know, some of you work in the office and you have a secretary. And you, uh, they do all the, all the menial things for you, right? They help you do the things that need to be done so you can get the work out the door and accomplish your task. Well, it, your Holy Spirit's a little bit more than that. <laughs> Uh, he does, he doesn't, he's not going to type your papers up for you. You've got to move your fingers. But he will help you overcome. He will empower you. He will strengthen you. These are important things to understand. He is with us moment by moment, as said before. He's residing in us. And we just need to ask. That's the key. We have to ask for help. We have to trust him as we yield to him. And he'll give us that aid along the way. Number three. He will always tell you the truth. God will never lie to you. He will never mislead you. We may not always understand what is going on, but he, it's not based in a lie. It's always true truth. And there's only one truth, and it's his. Number four, there are th- these three basic approaches that the Holy Spirit uses in helping us to know the Lord and to follow the Lord. 
I mentioned these before a couple weeks ago or whenever it was. The Holy Spirit will do it. As we read there in, in 14, 17, the Holy Spirit dwells with you and will be in you. And we went through that methodically, how that happens. And I want to remind us, the, how is it that the Holy Spirit is with us? Now, I was not raised in the church. These are not just words. These are not just little sweet little educational concepts for you to take home. Oh, wasn't that sweet? This is how it works. I'm going to illustrate this from my own conversion. I was not raised in the church. I had church experiences. I uh, Somehow when I was nine years old, I got sent to a, a church camp, and I enjoyed it. But I just didn't have a Christian family. I was invited, and that's, that was the extent, uh, a week-long experience uh, at a church camp at nine years old. I don't really remember being converted there, but I probably probably ask the Lord, who knows? I mean, you know how they do those things at camp. They just preach the gospel. But I surely didn't consider myself a Christian. And when I was 18 years old, I'd gotten myself in a lot of trouble. I won't go into the detail of that trouble, but it brought me to a, a point where I was sitting in my living room all by myself on the couch, a darkened room, and just contemplating how I'd, brought myself, how I'd gotten myself into this situation and the weight of guilt that was upon my soul. Now, that was the Holy Spirit. Now, I had no idea what, who the Holy Spirit was or any of that. There wasn't any religious framework to, to put upon this. I'm just telling you what was going on in my soul, what was going on in my inner person. This guilt, the weight, this pain, the sorrow, the, the, that which I'd brought upon other people. And I just, I began to weep. And I just asked the Lord, please forgive. I can, I, this experience is real as if it was yesterday. And, and when I think about the Holy Spirit being with every person that's been converted, there needs to be this time when you, there's tears of brokenness. There's times when you need a hanky to deal with your nose because you are crying out convulsively knowing that you are completely lost and you are guilty for God and you need a savior. If you've never had a, a moment where brokenness has come upon you, but it's just been this intellectual ascent that Jesus died for the cross, but there's no movement inside, then you can question your salvation. You can, convent, you can question that experience that you may or may not have had. Have you gotten real with God? That's the point. And that's, that's what it means. The Holy Spirit's there to, to introduce you to the Savior. But you've got to recognize that you need a Savior. You've got to recognize that you're guilty before God, that you've sinned against Him. You've sinned against heaven, and you've sinned against other people, and you've hurt people. And you may have been hurt by other people, but forgiveness must be a reality in your life. That is the with experience. Now, I've got a feeling, I don't know for sure, I don't really understand how it all happens, but I think the Holy Spirit came into my life at that point. I didn't know that, but I began, I asked the Lord to teach me how to pray. And he's pretty good about teaching us how to do whatever we ask him for. And so I, I began to walk with God. A couple of days later, I, I was with some of my friends, and I began to tell them what, the experience that I had, that I, that I had met the Lord, that the Lord had revealed himself and it sort of blew them away based on the character that I was prior to meeting them and what they knew me as in high school. And so 
it was received by them, but as I made the next couple of weeks, couple months go by, the Lord began to bring other people into my life. You need to go to church. I hadn't gone to church at this time. I hadn't gone. There was no altar call. I just, God had revealed himself to me. You've got to read the Bible. Okay, I can do that. So I began to read my Bible. I began to read it in a way that I'd never read any other book like that before. It jumped off the page. I'm like, whoa. I mean, literally, when it's, they say that the word is alive, it became alive to me. It's like, I, wow, this is really speaking to me. This is why Bible study is pretty cool. It's a great experience if you approach it in a devotional way. The Holy Spirit was in me, teaching me. And the Lord brought, like I said, other people into my life. And this upon experience, which is Acts 1.8, you know the scripture. The Holy Spirit was in the apostles, but they still needed something else. And this is where, what we're talking about when we say that this Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the apostles needed if, at the day, on the day of Pentecost when the church was beginning. They needed the power of God. They were running and hiding prior to this, right? But once they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they became as bold as lions. You know, and what does it tell us in Acts 4.12? They noticed that these guys were uneducated and unlearned, but they had been with Jesus. You see, that's, that's what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. He reveals Jesus to us, and there's a power. There's an authority that comes into our lives that we're able to boldly preach in his name and witness for him. This is what it's about. This is what we're here for, to, to share our faith and to bring others into the kingdom. This isn't just so that I can live the American dream and be happy not about that. It's, we're only here for a short time. We, we're here. Let's get our jobs done and, and fly out of here. That's the, the idea. That's the, that's the idea completely. This upon experience, I believe, is critical. I believe it is subsequent to salvation. I think it can happen uh, pretty close to salvation or probably could happen at salvation. I mean, God is not limited but here's how it happened to me. And it should happen to you if you haven't had this experience. And I'm not talking about speaking in tongues per se. You might. You might prophesy. You might do other things. But there should be the greatest evidence that you've been baptized and have had this upon experience of the Holy Spirit is that you have this incredible love for people. It overflows your life. You, are, you begin to really be others-centered. So what happened to me in my situation? I'd been saved for a couple months. And I started going to church with, uh, at that point. And I had been baptized in water. And he, we went to a church service, and uh, they happened to have an altar call. No, that's the first time I had even heard about an altar call. Wow, what's that? Okay. Well, I'll go down there. Okay, I'll check that out. <laughs> you know? And so, I, you know, I just, in my heart, when he, the pastor there called for the altar call, I said, well, I just want to get close to God, so I'm just going to go down there and get close to God. That's kind of how I processed it at 18 years old. So as I'm standing down, this is as this is real right now as it was then. Just amazing. I go down there, and I just stand, and there's music being played, and I just go like this. And then tears start coming down my cheeks. And I had the 
John 7, 37, 38 experience. Do you remember that verse? Jesus, great day of the feast, he stands there crying. It's, the, it's when the priest would pour out the water and it would run down in front of everybody. And Jesus cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That's what I was doing. Hey, I'll take a drink of that. Let me get down there. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so what we are talking about here is the Spirit coming upon a person. And, and, and right here, right here, just like when you are crying out for forgiveness and there's that inner convulsion, that, that brokenness before God, knowing that you are just absolutely guilty before God and you deserve to be punished in eternal separation from Him. It, it hits you here the deepest recesses of your person. It's not here. It's here. As I stood there, it began to come up, and I was tearing up, but there was, they were tears of joy. I was there for just a few minutes. I returned back to my seat, and something had happened. And the fellow I was with could tell something had happened on my face said, your face is shining and then on the way home as I was talking to him he says you're prophesying now that's not going to happen like that for everybody and I don't know that I'm trying to set yourself up for a disappointment that you don't have an experience like that I can only share what happened to me and you know just like death is a very personal experience everybody's going to be a little different for everybody so is your walk with God so is your encounter with God. The point is, seek God. Have these experiences. Be open. What's the guidelines? They're right here. If you have an experience and it's not in there, well, then, then that's all it was. But you should be able to find something there. I, I found my experience here. It's not something extra biblical. It's here. And God wants to speak to us. God wants to, us to identify with his work. That's where it begins. Jesus I believe that when you are baptized with the Spirit like that, it opens up the power of God and you're, it's unlimited what God can do through your life because you're surrendered to Him. And you notice the evidence of what happened in Jesus' life. He went to Capernaum, the house of comfort. In the Galilee, and it was, you know, Capernaum was his basis of operations, and he preached and was received. He went to that, as it says there, in the surrounding region. And the synagogues and everybody there that heard him received it. It's amazing. They could see that, wow, this guy is a prophet. This guy is speaking the words of God. It, whoa. Praise the Lord. You know, it was just a move of God. And it says in verse 15, he was glorified by all. They recognized that this was the hand of God. They recognized that he was Messiah. They received him. Now, Nazareth was not the case. It appears, you know, we, we, we just go from verse, you know, 15 to 16, and we think, well, you know, da, da. but there's probably a time lapse, a serious one, actually, probably. Uh, and I won't get into that right now, but uh, there was some time there because the news, you know, he had to go around the region, and, and his fame be grew quickly because of the miraculous nature of his ministry and the number of people that were were being ministered to. He set up his headquarters right where the uh, trade route 
from Egypt all the way up to Damascus came right through that area in Galilee. So you've got all this traffic flow and you've got these miracles taking place. It's going to get out quickly. And so it did. Even so, the people in Nazareth were hearing about, you know, the carpenter's son. So by the time he comes to Nazareth, they're well acquainted with what's going on in the Galilee. And so that's an important thing to, to have here. Now, uh, they, the locals didn't receive his message. And why is it that they didn't receive it? I, and I believe it's, it's because of the same, some of the same hang-ups that we have. We have some <clears throat> misconceptions about <clears throat> excuse me, how God is going to work. And in this case, what the, G, what the Messiah would be like and the, what he would do. And part of that uh, seems to be some of the things that they were taught uh, by the, the establishment. I think they were actually looking for someone like David. He's the son of David, right? David was God's warrior. He, he fought God's battles. We need somebody to take out these modern-day Philistines, you know, the Romans, and they're looking for deliverance on the physical, horizontal level that the Messiah would bring. So they had misconceptions. See, they had uh, no idea what the biggest problem in their life was. It wasn't the Romans. It was the sin nature. And Jesus came first to deal with what separated man from God, and that is the sin nature. And so they had restricted themselves to this horizontal view of what Messiah would be like rather than in this what Messiah could do with them and for them in their vertical relationship with God. You know, they were looking in the wrong place. They, were, they weren't looking for the right things. <laughs> like what John Wooden says about looking for the right things. We've got a bad habit of not looking for the right things. He tells this story in his book uh, about a fellow who lived in a small town in Indiana. And he thought about moving his family to, to this town. And so he's talking to the local uh, shopkeeper. And, um, you know, he says to him, he says, what kind of people live around here? And uh, the guy at the local station says, well, um, what kind of... Uh, People live where you're from, you know, where you're uh, from, back at your home. He said, well, they're ordinary. They're mean and and they're dishonest. And so uh, he says, um, well, that's kind of what you can find here too. There's people that are ornery, mean, and dishonest. Um, And then a little later, another guy comes in and asks the same. So, you know, what kind of people live around here? I'm thinking about moving here. He says, well, they're good people, they're honest people, and they um, seem to care about one another. And he says, uh, well, that's the kind of people that live around here. And so it all kind of depends upon what you're looking for. You know, if you're looking for uh, this or that, you're going to see this or that. If you're looking for uh, good, you'll see good. If you're looking for bad, you're going to find bad. So you're going to look for Jesus as you perceive him. But what are you looking for? Are you looking for something that's on the horizontal, what he can provide for you? Is it all about the physical here and now, or, is, or do you have eternity in mind when you, come, when you think about your relationship with God? Those are important concepts. And so uh, 
what actually transpired in Jesus' coming is not what they expected. And sometimes our expectations get us into trouble. And it got them into trouble. They knew certain things about Jesus or the Messiah that was to come, that he would come out of Bethlehem, that he was going to establish his kingdom, and he was going to wipe out the enemies, their enemies. And But they uh, had a misconception of God's timing and understanding. Let's turn to Isaiah 61. And I think it's important for us to understand something here. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 this is what, obviously, uh, Luke is drawing from, this messianic passage here in Isaiah, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And this is, uh, this is a good lesson for us when it comes to interpreting the scriptures, and, and, and it's what makes prophecy rather cryptic and hard to understand. But the first two verses, except the last part of the second verse, is quoted by Jesus, or read by Jesus, rather. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then, of course, the rest of our verse, 2, says, and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. And then verse 3 goes on to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes and oil, joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You see, everything above verse 2, the latter part, is all things that he would take care of in his first coming. But he didn't come there was not the day of vengeance. He, did, he stopped before he got to that part, part of the passage. Right in the middle of what we call verse 2, he stops. And he doesn't apply it to his situation. What he, what he has there in the remaining verses 2 is, we know what the day of vengeance is. That's the second coming. God's going to punish. He's gonna, his wrath is going to be poured out. And the remainder of those things are actually things that are going to take place, be completely fulfilled during the millennial reign. They're not happening now. But what is important is that we see what this passage means to us because it is the ministry of the Spirit is what he came for. There's two main things about the Messiah that, that we need to notice in this passage that he was anointed for one purpose, and that was to bring the good news. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The second thing that's important is that he was sent. And what was he sent to do? To heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, now, what is the acceptable year of the Lord? That's the title of the message, right? This is referring to the ju year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, this is, they were to set, cancel debts, set people free, set prisoners free, set slaves free. It was a time of liberation. Two words are linked to this. Uh, Yobel and Dior are the two words that are linked to uh, Jubilee. And essentially, Yobel, it means to lead back or to lead forth. And Dior means to liberate or create freedom. There are those who think the Yobel refers to the ram's horn. You know, they did blow the horn quite a bit. But either way, the idea of the acceptable of the Lord is to set 
people free. Jesus Christ came to this earth to set us free from the effects of the fall. All these things that are in this list here, this brokenheartedness, this this captivity, this spiritual blindness, physical blindness, physical maladies, the oppression, these are all results of the rebellion that our parents exercised in the garden. It's part of the curse. Jesus Christ came to set us free, to lift the effects and to lighten the effects of the curse that that are upon us as mankind. This is the acceptable year. This is, it should be, it can be a year of jubilee every year. It should be a moment-by-moment jubilee for us as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and the victory and that Jesus' life, His ministry, His death and resurrection were not in vain. It's important for us to accept it that way. This poverty, bondage, brokenheartedness, blindness, crushed. We're talking about people that are absolutely crushed. I mean, think about the people that are being crushed right now through what is going on in the world. There's only one hope. There's only one aid, and that is the power of God, the blessing of God. Those who continue to rebel will suffer. Those who repent and turn will be healed. And we have a ministry to accomplish that in the name of the Lord. That is our mission. God help us. they, they, They didn't respond too well. In Nazareth to him, did they? Wait a minute. I mean, man, your words are powerful, Jesus. We like, we like what you've said, but we don't agree with what it, you're saying it means. Your, your words are perplexed. How can a, and they got hung up on, how could this local kid that grew up in our neighborhoods, are you kidding me? You're the Messiah? Whoa, whoa. It, it was just, I mean, after all, prophets don't grow up from little boys, do they? Or do they? You know, that's really, they couldn't get their mind around the possibility. I mean, after all, the, the leadership told us that the Messiah comes out of Bethlehem. You know what? The leadership was blind, ignorant, and they didn't know where Jesus was really born. They thought he was born in Nazareth. See, we don't, know, we don't know as much as we think we know, right? It can get us into trouble. This is why I think when, when people tell me they've got this prophecy thing all wired, oh, this is easy. This is the way it's going to happen, really. Would you study a little bit longer? Because the more you learn about it, the more possibilities that you might not be exactly like you think it's going to be. And it doesn't really matter And sometimes, in some circles, we're just fighting over seven years. How stupid. How stupid can you be? I mean, you know, pre, post, or mid, or or pan, right? It's all going to pan out in the end. I mean, it's not worth the fight. You know what? We're all going to be together in the end. So get used to it. You know, you might as well get to know your brothers and sisters now because you're going to be spending a long time with them. Amen. The same anointing is awaiting. God is waiting for you to respond to it. 
He anoints his children. You think Jesus was unique? Yeah, he was. Very. No, he's a class of one. Just like God is in a class of one. But he's a template. The anointing is waiting for you, for me. If I will open my heart and I will seek God, I can have this power, this, his strength in my life to be the witness that this world needs right now. See, I can't go every place you can go. You can't go the places I go. But we together, as a body of Christ, as his army of believers, his children marching, following their marching orders, can go to the places that need to be visited with the gospel. So wherever we go, we can bring the message of hope. We have in our power, have at our disposal his power to lay hands on the sick, to pray for people to be healed, to cast out demons. And I mean that's part of the ministry. When you read through the Gospels, what was Jesus doing? Preaching, teaching, healing, and casting out demons. Now, there's some Calvary chapels, and I'm not going to beat on our non-denominational denomination. The demonic activity in this world is at a heightened level right now. And if you think that we don't have a ministry of casting out demons, you just aren't seeing things clearly, folks. I mean, it's real. The use of pharmacia, it brings people under the influence. You think the demons care if it's legal prescriptions or non-legal? Do you think they're leading the label? You, when you give yourself to narcotics... And you lose the control of yourself. You're opening doors for the enemy to gain access and influence you. Now, and we've talked about this before, and I'll say it again. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? No, no, I don't. What we're talking about here, there's only one word that's used in the New Testament when it comes to this activity. It's demonized. And that's what they do. Demons just demonize. They oppress, they hassle, they seek to possess. And we get caught up in oppression and possession and all these English words. Here's the, dif- the, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Is, is quite simple, actually. It's the issue of ownership. Satan and the demons seek to own the unbeliever, and they own them. And if they open themselves up, they can, have, they can become a host for a demon. You want to... I mean, not that I would encourage this, but if you want exposure to some of this, just go on YouTube. There's, there's, there's exorcisms that are taking place all, a lot, and people record them. And people do get possessed by uh, these spirits. Now, that's what can happen to an unbeliever. They can be owned. The Christian cannot be owned. We are bought with a price. We have an owner. His name is Jesus Christ. But when we don't deal with our flesh and we allow sin to remain in our hearts and we don't face it and deal with it, that creates a stronghold. And the enemy begins to oppress and to attack those areas of the flesh. And so it's not ownership. It's just oppression. And it's demonized. You're hassled. You can't get out of yourself. You become ineffective in your witness. And see, that's what Satan is after. He knows he can't take us back. But what he wants to do is neutralize us. So we have no effect. We make no progress in getting the gospel out 
in living lives that image Christ and reveal the character and nature of God to the world around us. That's what we're about, and he wants to nullify that. And so there, there's, there's a ministry here. And I'm not going to tell anybody, oh, well, we don't cast out demons in our church. You'd go to the church down the street. No, right here, right here, right now. We can take care of that. We can deal with that. We have the authority because we are his disciples. And it isn't the pastor or the elders. The weakest member who would consider themselves the weakest member in the body of Christ has more authority than any devil Amen. that it can be made manifest because we, it's not in our power. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that we take authority over these things. We had a brother that's paying, praying his... Um, impactatory prayers, you know, bringing judgment upon uh, the, the wicked. I, I'm all about that. That's the kind of authority we have. We can bring the thunder down in Jesus' name. And it's not us doing the judging, it's God, because we know what's right. We know what righteousness is, and we have to exercise that. There's no time for us to be, well, I don't really know. There's no time to be timid here. Do you realize what's coming do you realize what is good and evil? But good will always triumph. And I want to be on the cutting edge of what God is doing. And I hope you do too. We're going to close here. I mean, I could go on, but I can't because of time. We have communion to observe.